Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, politics, and current events. Today's session is on the interplay between partisanship and religiosity, as well as innovation and politics. Our first speaker will be Michelle Marguis, who is an associate professor of political science at Penn. Michelle has a new book entitled From Politics to the Pews, How Partisanship and the Political Environment Shape Religious Identity. Michelle believes that most political scientists misunderstand the role of religion and partisanship. The commonly held view is that religious people tend to vote Republican. Michelle believes that partisanship is the driving force and that Republicans want to be religious to fit in with their political ideology. And correspondingly, Democrats want to become more secular. Our second speaker will be Julian Zelizer, who is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 41 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton. He has a book entitled Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Julian will talk about the rise of Newt Gingrich and his success of winning the House for the Republicans way back in 1994, which was the first time in 40 years. Julian will explain Gingrich's political innovations like using C-SPAN, the contract of America that nationalized a midterm election, and the aggressive use of ethic rules that toppled the Speaker of the House right and led to a Republican victory. I think the 1994 midterms have important similarities for the upcoming midterm elections in a few months. All right, let's start with Michelle Margulies. Go ahead, Michelle. An axiom of contemporary American politics is that Republicans are religious and Democrats are less so. This is sometimes called the God gap or the religiosity gap, and it actually represents one of the most important and enduring social cleavages in the electorate. This God gap is actually relatively new. Prior to this, we thought of religious divides and partisanship in voting being along ethno-religious lines. So Catholics were Democrats, mainline Protestants were Republicans. But this God or religiosity gap is actually a coalition based on religiosity. So that is how devout you are. Devout Catholics, church-attending mainline Protestants, church-attending evangelicals, Christians who don't use any of those labels, they're the ones who make up the Republican Party. And the less religious counterparts are more likely to be Democratic. If you compare the partisanship to those who attend weekly, which is about a quarter of the population, compared to people who don't attend church at all, that's about a 30% of the population, Only 25% of the population who never attend church identify as a Republican compared to 55% of those who attend weekly. The conventional story is that religion and religiosity influenced politics. People saw the political elites and the political parties moving apart on questions of religion. So this includes the Republican Party starting to use more religious rhetoric and also taking up the mantle of religious issues such as abortion, gay marriage, school prayer. We can definitely talk about the fact that the parties were not separated on abortion in the 70s. And the conventional story is the parties shifted, they split apart, and people saw these differences and then they moved their partisanship and their vote choices based on their religiosity. So the religious people moved into the Republican camp, the less religious people moved into the Democratic camp. American religion is changing. So who belongs to what faith, whether you identify with a faith or not, whether you've chosen to become a religious non-identifier, that is you say you're nothing, you're an N-O-N-E, none, not a habit-wearing nun, but a nun. What church you go to, how involved you are in that church, All of these decisions are being made in part based on politics. It doesn't mean that religion doesn't affect politics, but that politics are shaping all these religious choices as well. It also matters for political mobilization. If Republicans are self-selecting into churches, that means the Sunday before an election, they are all in a pew. They are easily mobilized. They're all right there. Churches used to be one of the places where people across political and social spectrums and hierarchies came together and got to know each other. And that's not happening anymore. By being a secular Democrat or a religious Republican, if someone then criticizes religious people, they're not just criticizing your religious identity, they're also criticizing your political identity, right? This team that you're on is becoming more and more powerful because you have a lot of identities wrapped up in it. You meet a secular Democrat when you're a religious Republican. That person doesn't just look different from you on political. It's political and religious and maybe gender, maybe race. We're creating these identities that make it very much harder to bridge the gap across people, which I think is a little problematic. Robert Putnam spoke in my book club a few years ago about his book, American Grace. 
Putnam highlights the collapse in church attendance in Christian churches over the past 60 years. What's happening with religiosity in America? The decline is really big. I think you could reframe it a little bit and say people who said that they're nothing, that they have no religious identification, was basically never over 5% through the 1990s. And then it's now exploded. And now we're at like 25, 30%. So just in the 25, 30-year period, it went from negligible measurement error at the zero mark to over a quarter of Americans. And that number is even higher among young Americans. Part of it is you do see this generalized decline in religiosity, but you also see it breaking partisan. So Democrats and Republicans alike have become slightly less religious, but it's far more likely that those non-religious people are Democrats. How does partisanship affect your religiosity? Religion is about the eternal state of your soul. Politics is this mundane, secular, worldly thing. So how is it possible that that is the direction of causality? When you're a kid, you have very little agency over your religion. Your parents make these decisions for you. When you reach young adulthood, people generally fall away from religion. They're not necessarily hostile to religion, but it's less important to them. They're asserting their independence from their parents. They might be engaging in behaviors that are incompatible with religions, whether that's experimenting with sex or drugs or alcohol, right? Then you get married and have kids. This is the time period when you think about how you want to raise your kids. Do I want to raise them going to church? Do I want to send them to Sunday school? You kind of make these decisions for your family and you've sort of restarted that socialization with the next generation. We form our political identities in early adulthood and then they're actually quite stable over the course of our time. People who are Democrats when they're young are Democrats when they're older. People who are Republicans when they're young are Republicans when they're older. The generation who came of age in the 1960s, the protest generation, are just today, despite being much older, still more liberal than people who were raised during, say, the Reagan era. None of us wants to say, I'm a liberal Democrat. I'm going to take my kids to church every Sunday. But then in the car on the way home, tell my kids we don't really believe any of that stuff. You're just going to make decisions to create a household where you're teaching kids a set of values that you believe in. In my research, I look at data from the 1970s to today. I look at panel data, which tracks the same individuals over periods of time. What I find is that Democrats and Republican youths between 18 and 25 fall away from religion at roughly the same rate. This is this universal thing. It's not about politics. It's just about religion's not important to 20-year-olds. But then you have to make these decisions about whether or not to come back Republicans are actually returning to the pews at higher rates than Democrats. And that's where we see that God gap starting to emerge. Data from the 70s and 80s is right around the time that the Democrats and Republicans were starting to split on questions of religion and morality, abortion, gender norms, feminism, things like that. And that's precisely the time where we see partisanship dictate the extent to which they return to religion when they were at this stage married with kids making those decisions. I'm Jewish. And whenever I move to a new community, I go synagogue shopping. I visit a variety of shoals and then pick my synagogue based on a variety of factors, level of engagement, music, interest in the rabbi's sermon, the community, etc. We see dramatic differences in the rates of decline in various Protestant sects. Why do you think evangelical churches are doing well with church shopping relative to its peers? When you're making decisions about the religious life for your family and your church shopping or your synagogue shopping, politics, I'm arguing, can be one of the factors. But there's lots of factors. And there are Yelp reviews for churches, free childcare during church. There's coffee beforehand, small group activities, non-religious components, creating this community of just, am I going to be happy here? You're doing church shopping. Maybe it doesn't explicitly have to do with politics, but you're very much self-selecting into a community. Politics is definitely part of it something that everyone can resonate with when you first say politics can affect religion and people say, no, 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 that's impossible. It's not crazy that you go synagogue shopping because at the end of the day, you want to find a community that you feel comfortable in. And one of those things is about politics. And if you're a reformed Jew who is a Republican, you probably want to find a synagogue that doesn't talk about politics that much because the majority of the people around you are probably going to be Democrats, empirically speaking, right? Politics can come from the pulpit, but it can also just come from your peers, right? It's just about being involved in a community, making sure that your views were aligned enough that you felt comfortable. Irv Gelman spoke on What Happens Next a few months ago about his new book on the 1960 presidential election, 
between JFK and Nixon. And in that election, Catholics voted overwhelmingly for the Catholic candidate JFK. But in recent presidential elections for John Kerry and Joe Biden, who are both Catholic, they lost the Catholic vote. What changed? Has abortion been key to the coalition of religious Christians, regardless of its denomination? That's a great question. I think if you, in 1960, said, I have a crystal ball, these groups are going to get along famously in 50 years, people would have laughed, right? There was real anti-Catholic sentiment and anti-Catholic discrimination among Protestants. The states that had been liberalizing abortion laws pre-Roe v. Wade in the 1960s, those states were the states with low levels of Catholics, which is actually places in the South. So it might surprise people to know that places like South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, these were states that pre-Roe v. Wade had already at the state level rolled back abortion restrictions. The states that were also rolling it back were the states with evangelical Christians, which is another way of saying the states without the Catholics. The Southern Baptist Convention has semi-annual conventions where they create their bylaws. And up until 1978, they were saying, we support Roe v. Wade. That shifted. Republicans saw this as an avenue to win over Catholic voters to take on the pro-life mantle. And they thought they could create a coalition among religious Americans, including evangelicals. Up until 1980, Reagan, we see for the first time rights to the unborn, all of that. There was some discussion between religious elites and political elites from a top down. Evangelicals used to say abortion was a Catholic issue, and then it became an evangelical issue. And so these groups started to work together. They agree on LGBT rights and gay marriage. Those groups came together. American Catholics are not monolithic. Are there differences by race or country of origin? In the 1960 election, 90 to 95% of Catholics were white. Today, a minority of Catholics are white because people who used to maybe be a Democratic Catholic, they just say that they're nothing anymore. They're not religious. They've opted to just say they're nothing. But the number of Catholics have stayed relatively stable, and that's through immigration. Immigration of Hispanic and Latino people are really the reason why Catholic numbers haven't declined as much as they have. Larry Bartles at Vanderbilt, in his book, Democracy for Realists, references a study done in 1974, immediately after Watergate. And those Republicans who switched parties because of Watergate also changed their views on abortion. Bartles thinks that once you shift partisan alignment, then you will also likely change all your opinions to be consistent with your new partisanship. Otherwise, cocktail parties are just going to be miserable. <laughs> yeah, so that book that you're mentioning by Aiken and Bartels is one of my favorites. We think about religion affecting our politics, economic views, social views. And then I pick the party that best reflects them. And obviously that's not perfect. We live in a two-party system. You're not going to be able to find a party that reflects you perfectly. But the idea is that you have these political attitudes and they determine who you support. But what Aiken and Bartel show and what one of my advisors, Gabe Lenz, shows is that actually our partisanship is often driving our opinions. And so and this is a case of these people who switched from being Republican to Democratic, they became more pro-choice, especially men. We don't really pay attention to politics that much. We don't like dissonance. You want there to be consistency because, as you said, it makes life easier. You don't want to be at a cocktail party disagreeing with people. You want it to all just be easy, right? Trump is becoming its own sort of identity. Do you like Trump versus not? Are you pro-Trump or not? The Aiken and Bartels argument is very much related to this idea that it can affect your religion, which is just generally speaking, our partisanship is driving the outfit you're choosing. When I was in high school, I was on Nutrier's student government. My best friend, Amir Khan, and I proposed closing the student smoking lounge. As incredible as it may sound today, at my high school, there was both a student and a separate faculty smoking lounge. Amir and I placed posters around the school, scheduled a meeting in the cafeteria to discuss closing the student smoking lounge. Minutes before it started, I looked inside the cafeteria, and only smokers were in attendance and they wanted blood. Amir and I walked in and said that well, we would do everything in our power to make sure that individual choice would be maintained and that the smoking lounge would never be closed, and then we ran off the stage. Are politicians political entrepreneurs who make policy, or do they represent the attitudes of the public 
they represent. That's a great anecdote. This is also in Aiken and Bartels. There are very few examples of public opinion and self-interest really being bottom up. And that's because it's really hard to know what's in your self-interest because it has to be very simple and very clear costs and benefits. And it has to be very tangible. And the example in the research is about smoking, getting taxes on cigarettes, getting rid of non-smoking signs. This is tangible and has real costs and benefits. And the costs and benefits are very clear. It's not confusing. I went to my 25-year high school reunion and I asked the principal about the school smoking lounges. And he said they were closed years ago. Today, teachers and students walk off campus and smoke by the train tracks. In the past few days, the Biden administration announced that Juul products will be banned and that it plans to regulate cigarettes to remove its nicotine. In the U.S., smoking is class-driven, and white working class are the biggest smokers. And they're also Republicans. What do you think about smoking regulation and partisanship? That's a good question. I actually haven't thought either party actively appeals to the smoker population as a constituency per se. There's, you know, huge class, education, income differentials. I don't think that Republicans would necessarily say it's for constituency purposes. This would be an example of kind of limiting government overreach and regulation, regulating what can and cannot be sold. There's an old expression that Jews make money like Episcopalians, but they vote like Puerto Ricans. Why is that? Jewish voting patterns are very interesting because they are predominantly Democratic, despite the socioeconomic status of the group, which might lead it to be a little more fiscally conservative. Jews have been discriminated against. So there's this appreciation for liberal values, and we do see an uptick in kind of anti-Jewish violence and things like that, that keeps people in the Democratic camp, even if maybe economically they might feel like they align more with Republicans, but we're now seeing more of a divide, this education divide. Having a postgraduate degree is very predictive of being a Democrat in today's political environment, this so-called diploma divide. Jews are very highly educated. Let's talk about African-Americans next. Martin Luther King said that the most segregated hour of the week is the hour of church services on Sunday. African-Americans moved from the party of Lincoln to the party of Lyndon Johnson. African-American men seem to be moving gradually to the party of Trump. What factors would you use in your model to predict which African-Americans will change parties today? Religiosity, income, gender, views on abortion, what? Wow, that's a lot of great questions. So I guess I would start by saying every election year, there's discussion about Republicans capturing the African-American vote. And every year, it doesn't really happen. Martin Luther King was right when he made that quote. He's still right today. Most churches are racially segregated. When we talk about churches and republicanism, that is about white churches and republicanism. The black church was the home, that was the bastion of the civil rights movement. Black churches are actually more politicized than white evangelical churches. And by politicized, I mean they're much more likely to do voter registration drives, hand out leaflets about how to vote, hear explicit political content from the pews. These black churches are incredibly politicized on the Democratic side. Black Protestantism is thought to be a form of evangelicalism. It is about biblical literalism. But remember that the Bible is massive, and anyone who says they're a biblical literalist, it's impossible. You can't be a biblical literalist about everything. It's just impossible. White evangelical theology has evolved over the last 150 years to really be about personal salvation. The Black evangelical theology focuses on helping the less fortunate. We need to provide for people. We need to pull each other up. We need to treat each other like brothers. If you are a African-American avid churchgoer, you don't feel dissonance between being a Democrat and going to church in the same way that a white Protestant who goes to church religiously might feel a dissonance between their democratic identity and their religious identity. To your question of who would I predict would move first, it actually wouldn't be the religious African-Americans because all of these other policies that are democratic economics, government safety net, social spending, all of that, that actually aligns very well with their biblical interpretation. Let's change topics to Hispanic voters. You mentioned earlier that the urban environment of the United States are increasingly Hispanic Catholics, not white Catholics. 
we've seen in the recent primaries in Texas a trend in the Hispanic population to be voting more Republican than normal. Would you expect the more religious Hispanics to change their vote to Republican relative to the non-religious Hispanics? It used to be Catholics meant white, and now it is a much more diverse coalition. There are also African-American Catholics, Hispanic Catholics. The other thing that has changed is 30 years ago, when I said Hispanic, that also overwhelmingly meant Catholic. But that's not the case anymore. There's a huge and growing evangelical Hispanic population. That's coming in two places, through evangelism that's happening in Central America, and it's happening through conversion when they're already in the U.S. There's also a much larger growing population of Hispanic non-identifiers, especially among second, third, fourth generation Hispanic Americans who have been here in the United States, becoming less religious. And we talked about Hispanics. I could say Hispanic and the religion would be Catholic. Now I say Hispanic and now we have to say, do you mean Catholic Hispanics, evangelical Hispanics, or non-religious Hispanics? When we talk about Hispanic evangelicals, those folks much more likely to be Republican than Hispanic Catholics. Hispanic Catholics went about two-thirds, one-third, Biden, Trump. Hispanic evangelicals was 55, Trump. And then non-religious was overwhelmingly for Biden. What we're seeing with the Hispanic shift to the Republican Party is about religious variation among Hispanics, understanding the religious heterogeneity among this group that, again, didn't exist 20 years ago is going to become more and more important because we're seeing a lot of Hispanic Catholics becoming non-identifiers. So over time, the proportion of how the three religious groups break out among Hispanics change. And as that changes, that's going to have a direct impact on what we think and expect from the partisan makeup of Hispanics. There are significant differences in our Hispanic population and partisan makeup. There's race, white Hispanic, and non-white Hispanic And I'm assuming that the white Hispanic is more likely to be Republican. The second is whether a woman is married or not, or with or without children, level of education, working class is mixed, college might trend Republican, post-grad will be Democrat. What variables predict Hispanic voting patterns, and how do these other variables compare to religiosity in importance to predicting Hispanic partisanship? All of these things go together. There are lots of people who are not religious who are married, but being married and being religious are positively correlated. Hispanic women who are married, which religion frowns upon, you touch on an important point, which is that race and ethnicity are not the same thing. We talk about race as being Black, white, Asian. Ethnicity is, we think of it as Hispanic, non-Hispanic. There is variation in how those two questions map onto each other. It's very confusing. Most People use those terms interchangeably, and it's not. White Hispanic is often, we think of people from Spain, but obviously this is all self-defined. Whereas a non-white Hispanic person, if we saw in the U.S., we'd say this person is Black. There was slave trade in Central and South America. So there's people of all colors and races in addition to the ethnic component. When you're part of a minority group, whether it's race, ethnicity, religion, Education certainly matters, but might matter a little bit less. So if you are a super highly educated Hispanic person, you might be more politically engaged. You also might know more about how policies affect members of your group. And so even if economically it might make sense for you to move to the Republican Party, it's actually your education and your kind of awareness about the political world that keeps you in the Democratic camp. When we talk about the Catholic vote, it's complicated because there's racial and ethnic variation. And similar with African-Americans, as African-Americans continue to increase their numbers in higher education and their economic prospects increase, that's just creating more heterogeneity in the group. Then the question is, do we expect to see heterogeneity in their voting or do we expect it to stay as a cohesive, homogenous group? I recently moved to Miami Beach and most of my neighbors are Hispanics. On one side was an Argentine family where the husband went to MIT as his brother, a very intellectual, entrepreneurial family. Directly across the street was a Cuban Catholic, and then on the other side was a Cuban Jewish family. Cubans, Brazilians, Venezuelans, and Argentines have substantial populations in South Florida, whereas in Chicago, where I used to live, it was predominantly Mexican population with some Central Americans. When we refer to Hispanics, it's a very broad term for multi-ethnic population. How do you think about one's original place of birth as being a current determinant of partisanship? 
That's a great question. So I'm going to give a plug to another great podcast, which is called The Experiments. There's this great episode called Inventing Hispanic, and it's about the history of the term Hispanic. It is a social construct to Cubans and in Argentine. They all speak Spanish. You throw Brazil in, they speak Portuguese. We talk about Cuban-American voting patterns as a function of Cubans being from Cuba. This idea that the Argentine neighbor might have a very different political outlook than the Cuban neighbor on account of their political history. So when we talk about Hispanic American voting, we are combining people who have lived in the U.S. They became Americans because they lived in Mexico and then it became America. Texas and California used to just be Mexico. They have been here hundreds of years and have basically lived here since the places they lived became America. That's very different than people who in the last 20 years, unfortunately, from a data and survey perspective, if you're looking at exit polls on the 2022 election, we're not able to break it out based on these subgroups because there's just not enough of them. We clump Hispanic Americans together, regardless of whether you became a citizen last week and English is not your first language, to I'm a fourth generation and I identify as Hispanic on a survey, but I actually don't speak Spanish. And by combining those two people, you're losing a lot of really important nuance. I think Asian Americans is another excellent example of that because in that case, there's so much variation. Vietnamese who came during the Vietnam War versus Chinese versus Japanese, why they came to the US, the conditions under which they came to the US and their home political environment could not be more radically different. And those things, affect how you view the political world. If you came from a place with a high-functioning democratic government, that's very different than fleeing because of authoritarianism. Those things affect your political views, and it also affects the political views of your children because you're socializing them to think about the world in a certain way. Donald Trump is not a religious man, but recently he's been the leader of the religious party. Some academics said that doesn't make any sense, and so we should start to see splits within the party as it relates to Trump. But we've seen a continuing concentration of religious people into the Republican Party led by a non-religious person. Is there no linkage between the religiosity of its leadership and its appeal to religious people? This is where our politics do mental gymnastics. I spent eight weeks in Alabama a couple years ago going to churches, just talking to people. And I asked people a lot about Donald Trump. And there was a lot of similar rhetoric, which is, it's about the vessel that King David, King Saul, they were imperfect men that could be used for God's furthering of his agenda. There doesn't seem to be a problem with his lack of religiosity so long as he is doing the things that they want him to be doing. A non-religious person who is doing the things that the religious right want done, not a problem. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Michelle, what are you optimistic about as it relates to partisanship and religiosity? We're in a world where we are choosing our echo chambers. Religion is creating bridges among people who are politically like-minded. America is becoming far less white and far less Christian. As someone who is very concerned about the Trump era and what this means for the children I am currently raising in the United States— I take comfort in the fact that we are becoming more religiously diverse. We are becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. And the Republican Party, as we know it, by virtue of basically being a white Christian party, is eventually not going to be able to win elections without changing who they appeal to. They either need to change so that they're appealing to a broader group or they're going to be on the losing end of things. What I'm optimistic about is that the demographics of who's voting will look very different when my five and three-year-old are voting. It will be a group that I hope to be more inclusive and diverse and electing representatives who are inclusive and diverse. That is something I'm optimistic about in the long term. Thanks, Michelle. We're now going to move on to our second speaker, Julian Zellinger, who is a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton he has a book out entitled Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Julian, please go ahead. Steve Bannon, advisor to Donald Trump, said, look, it's very simple. We go for the head wound and your side has pillow fights. The head wound will always win over the pillow fight. And he was talking about Republicans and Democrats. 
Bannon's quote is incredibly instructive, and it says a lot about American politics. It gets to the issue called asymmetric partisan warfare. What that means is that polarization has happened differently, that the Republican Party as a whole has moved much further to the right than Democrats. In terms of partisan tactics, Republicans have become much more extreme in breaking with norms and important political traditions. And I wrote a book that tries to understand how did the parties move in different directions. Many people who look at this question look at the big factors, such as the way in which voters sorted. Southern Democrats became Republicans. Both parties lost their center. In my book, Burning Down the House, I wanted to know more about the individuals who made a difference. And I zeroed in on Newt Gingrich, who really was one of the central figures in changing the Republican Party in the 1980s. When he's a young Republican from Georgia, he comes into the House of Representatives during a period when Republicans had not controlled the House since 1954. It was a democratic institution. Gingrich argues to his fellow Republicans that if they continue to play by the rules of Washington, they were never going to win power. He starts to push fellow Republicans to be much more aggressive in partisan warfare. The book itself centers around a critical event in 1989 when Gingrich is able to bring down the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, using ethics charges to pressure him into resigning. That was a turning point because, A, Gingrich, who didn't have any standing within the party, is able to spearhead a campaign that brings down the most powerful figure in Washington other than the president. And B, he is elected as minority whip, and the party legitimates the politics that Gingrich practices. I focus on how Gingrich pushes his colleagues to use much more toxic language in political battle. Second, using processes that had been put into place after Watergate to clean up Washington ethics rules, put Congress on television, and he weaponizes them to bring down the Democratic majority. By the end of the story, we have a Republican Party that's embraced a no guardrail partisanship when Gingrich is made Speaker of the House in 1994, when Republicans finally win back control. His style of partisanship within the GOP is legitimated. The legacy of Gingrich is felt today. We've had several generations who live in the world that Gingrich created in the 1980s. Most American historians focus on the presidents. This book is about the battle between two House speakers, Jim Wright, a Democrat, and Newt Gingrich, a Republican. Why did you decide to write about congressional battles and the speakers of the House? I've spent my career focusing on Congress, the extraordinarily important institution. That institution is messy, hard to understand, fragmented. That's my macro reason. Gingrich is one of these figures, if you live in Washington, even if you were following the presidency, you knew that what was going on in the House was quite dramatic. And the tenor of the party was not being set by George H.W. Bush or Ronald Reagan at some levels. It was really a congressionally-led battle. I wanted to capture this battle royale, so to speak, between the Speaker and this up-and-coming Republican. Let's start with Speaker Jim Wright, who is a Democrat from Texas. A few months ago, Irv Gelman spoke on what happens next on the 1960 presidential campaign between JFK and Nixon. And Texas, in that 1960 presidential race, was allegedly won by JFK And the vote was basically a tie. It was a 50-50 state. Yet in the U.S. House congressional elections, Texas went 24 to 0 for the Democrats. How is that even possible? When Jim Wright really comes into power, he's making a name for himself. At a period, Texas is still Democratic. There's different kinds of Texas Democrats. There are some who are conservative on issues like race and unionization. And then you have another strand that's conservative on those issues, but tilt liberal. If you come of age when Wright did, you weren't that scared of Republicans. You were scared of inter-party tensions. As Wright's career unfolds, by the 70s, things are changing. There's more of a Republican presence in Texas. People like Newt Gingrich in Georgia 
are sprouting up in different areas. You never thought you would see Republican power. Wright's generation believed in legislating. It was about doing things for your district, bringing back money and making sure all your constituents were happy. That was the lifeblood of what it meant to be in Congress. And finally, if you were from Texas, you were powerful. You had Lyndon Johnson, you had the Speaker of the House until 61, Sam Rayburn. That's where Jim Wright came from. And it was a blend of believing in government, a certain amount of liberalism, but also a real devotion to old-fashioned legislative work. Democratic Speaker Jim Wright voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It would be inconceivable for any Democrat to survive in the House today who voted against this key piece of legislation, let alone become the Speaker in the late 1980s. How could this happen? They'll say he was protecting himself, meaning it was literally the end of your political career if you voted for civil rights legislation. Only a handful of Southerners were able to get away with that. Even Lyndon Johnson only really can embrace this because the Southerners in Congress give him a pass and say, we want you to be a national leader, so you do what you have to do. Wright was part of an older school where some of those lines were not accepted but understood. When Reagan's in office in the 80s, he's very effective at keeping the House Democrats on the same page and fighting back against Reagan conservatism. So I think that's why it got something of a pass. But it wasn't as if younger Democrats were happy with that legacy. After Watergate, the Democrats won massive majorities in Congress and then passed very strict ethics rules for congressmen. Speaker Jim Wright got caught up by these new ethics rules and was investigated by democratically controlled ethics committees. Gingrich publicized that Wright may have also received kickbacks from various constituents, and in addition, Wright hired an ex-felon to be his chief of staff. What happened? The hard part of my book is there's no heroes. Wright matured professionally before all these rules happened, so there was a whole generation they didn't get how the rules were changing the way things worked in Washington, or how things looked to people, which is equally as important. Wright was never found guilty of having violated any ethics rules. He did things that looked borderline. He would sell lots of copies of his book, and he would earn revenue from it. It was legal, according to the ethics rules, but it looked like he was circumventing the limits on honoraria. And he had a business with a real estate developer in his district. There was no evidence he did anything differently to help this person, but those became the focus of the attack that Gingrich launched. His hiring someone who had brutally assaulted a woman earlier in his career comes up later, and it's not part of the ethics rules. It's more a political shocker. One of the outrages that you highlighted in your book is Jim Wright's direct involvement in the savings and loan scandal. Speaker Wright would meet directly with the FDIC to help his cronies when they borrowed money from the savings and loans, and then these banks would later go bust. Given Wright's behavior, why was this not a bigger issue in the House ethics investigation? Savings and loan scandal in the 80s becomes a problem for both parties, which is why no one wants to touch it, because there's too many legislators, Republicans and Democrats who are receiving money from the industry. He went beyond and was helping individuals. Let's move on to Newt Gingrich. He seemed to come out of nowhere. He has a present vision that Southern Democratic states should be Republican. Gingrich sees opportunity in Georgia, and he dedicates his career to winning a congressional seat. Newt Gingrich is a political entrepreneur who innovates with his Southern strategy and using new political tactics like broadcasting his message national using C-SPAN. Was Newt Gingrich a political innovator? He comes from a state that's so heavily Democratic, where already he feels that everything is stacked against the Republicans. And he starts to get this aggressive posture toward politics when he's pretty much a nobody in the House. Most Republicans don't want anything to do with Gingrich initially. Gingrich is an entrepreneur. He's saying that Republicans work with Democrats according to the rules, automatically stacks the deck against the Republicans. And so you have to break all of this. And he would take things like C-SPAN, and he really sees it can be a potent political weapon to shape the debate and to go after the Democrats. What were the national political implications of Gingrich's takedown 
of Speaker Jim Wright? Oh, huge. Many senior Republicans who had kept Gingrich at an arm's distance by 1989 when the Speaker falls say, whatever we think of him, he's on to something. And you see more Republicans embracing him and his tactics. And it culminates in 1994 when Republicans gained control of the House and Senate, first time since 1954. In many ways, as important as the Reagan presidency to the Republican revolution, because Republicans are in power in the House and they will retain control for a long time. It changes the party balance. It's part of the much more competitive, polarized and toxic system that we've been in since the 1990s. Let's dig into the 1994 midterm election. President Clinton ran as a centrist, but he governs more like a liberal in his first two years of office. And then the Democrats get slaughtered in the House midterms. What happened? Within the Democratic Party in those first Clinton years, it was fraught. A lot of liberals thought he wasn't very progressive. And not unlike today, Clinton was governing as someone who was trying to expand government with the health care plan, raise taxes in a progressive way. There were many liberals in the party who said he was still doing it in a centrist fashion. The health care was more a regulatory program and a single payer plan. In 94, though, everything gets redefined once Republicans are in office. Gingrich is intent on pushing politics toward the center and forcing Clinton's hand. He leads a major government shutdown, which at the time was not normal. Clinton, although he is reelected, he'll spend much of his time speaking the language of centrism. There's all kinds of interesting lessons. And there is some comparison to what the Republicans want to do. They're looking for another 94 right now. They're looking for a defining midterm that puts them back in power on Capitol Hill, pushes the Biden presidency outside the ability to really achieve bold legislation. In 1994, Gingrich published the contract with America. What were the political issues that successfully nationalized this congressional campaign? Gingrich is intent on nationalizing those midterm elections. He didn't want to make it all about local politics. He wanted to make it an election that was against Bill Clinton. This was a little different as a vote in favor of the Republicans, not just Republican candidates. So he crafts this 10-point contract. It was going to be a tear sheet that would be found in TV Guide. It included a balanced budget amendment welfare reform, term limits for members of Congress, and more. It's part of the reason the Republicans do well. Because he unified the GOP candidates around something nationally, this was smart politically in that it gave the perception of being like a presidential election. Next topic is congressional legislative theory. The leading academic theoretician on Congress is David Mayhew from Yale. Mayhew spoke at my book club three times, and his research focused on the second half of the 20th century when major legislation stalled until it got bipartisan support that would then pass with supermajorities. What is your opinion of Mayhew's framework for passing legislation? Mayhew, he's the greatest political scientist on Congress, and his work argues we overstate the dysfunction. Even today, Congress still passes lots of stuff. Even when we have divided government, it's not as if Congress is sitting in their office and literally nothing happens. You have lots of bills, significant bills passed, and we miss that because of the focus on the dysfunction. Mayhew, what he's pointing to is the way in which, at least until the last couple of decades, there was a learning process or a testing process in Congress. You know, when we write the history, focus on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and there was a movement, it emerged and it passed. But the reality is, versions of that bill had been fought over and debated for at least a decade. In Congress, legislators test the waters. They learn what the parameters are, what they will accept. And it literally takes a lot of time to craft together any kind of compromise, because the divisions are not just in Washington, they're in the electorate. Congress works well over time, it kind of narrows the range of difference. It finds where there's points of commonality. And ultimately, you reach the point Mayhew is talking about. Sometimes that's a supermajority. Sometimes it's a narrow majority. But either way, the basic process is a good one. 
I have mixed feelings on where we are today. I mean, does that really happen? It happens on legislation, but it's also true. Some of our big issues just go unaddressed, perpetually gridlocked. We're actually either standing in place or we're moving farther apart. And why is that the case? A part of it is the polarization we're talking about. There's just less of a center. In the 40s to the 60s, you had a big center. Both parties were divided internally, and that meant bipartisan coalitions were natural. It was the only way to get anything done. Today, the parties lean toward partisan solutions. It means that whatever you're for, the other half of the country is going to be staunchly against that. And that's a hard political problem to start evolving toward legislation with there. We don't have a system as we did before where we could get supermajorities. So if you can't get a supermajority, having that requirement in the Senate poses a big political challenge. After Watergate, the Democrats had supermajority control of the House and the more liberal Democrats reorganized the power structure in the House by stripping power away from the committee heads and then giving it to the Speaker. Why did this happen? And what were the political implications of these major rule changes? From 1920s to 1970s, power was fragmented in the House and the Senate. In the House, the Speaker was not the prime mover. The way the institution really worked was committee leaders had a lot of power and autonomy. They could do things that contradicted what the party wanted at that time. It wasn't simply norms. It was the rules. The Speaker until the 1970s didn't have the power to assign members in the House of their party to different committees, which is one of the biggest powers that you have in Congress, because people want to be on committees that will help them get reelected. Who did it? It was a committee chair. The chairman of the Ways and Means had that power. So the whole institution had been built around fragmenting power nurturing these bipartisan alliances. Committee leaders worked with the ranking members of each committee, and they really ran the show. In the 70s, primarily Democrats, but some Republicans thought the system was terrible. And the argument was you needed more partisanship. Until parties were coherent and united, you would always have this mishmash in Washington where no one really stood for anything. So they changed the rules. They empower the speaker to really run the party, they weakened committee chairs. Congress was becoming more partisan in part because of rule changes and reforms. And one of the things that was fascinating about Gingrich is he saw, even though Democrats were putting this into place and they imagined they'd always control the institution so it would work to their benefit, he saw this is going to help us and we're going to use these rules to our advantage, which is what he does in 1994. But we have a system now which is top-down, it's very centralized, and we do have more partisanship. But many people now kind of yearn for a system where there's avenues to break with those partisan demands. Do you think that we should return to powerful committees, reduce the Speaker's discretion, and diffuse power to the committee chairman in the House? Clearly, there are problems partisanship creates. And so It doesn't have to be either or, but I think there is room to give some more autonomy within the House to committee leaders. You mentioned that in the 1960s and 70s, the political parties were incoherent. They were conservative Democrats and there was liberal Republicans. When the parties became nationalized, the parties became more polarized. Partisans got rid of the centrists. Many Republicans don't like their rhinos and progressives despise Joe Manchin. Partisanship became a team sport among the like-minded. In the 70s, when I studied these rules changes, one of the things that was interesting was there was an idea of responsible partisanship. And they didn't want parties that were too divided internally. And it can offer voters a clear choice for a country. The idea of responsible partisanship is you need some guardrails. You have to balance the imperatives of partisanship with the imperatives of governing. You have to balance it with caring about the health of institutions. And if you go all in on partisanship, That's very destructive. The way to think of it isn't do we have partisanship or not, but how can we get back to responsible partisanship? The most shocking aspect of the current session of Congress is the inability of the senior Democratic leadership to find a compromise with Joe Manchin on spending and taxes. Why can't Majority Leader Schumer or President Biden make a deal with a Democratic senator? There is a partisan part of the story. If you get a few votes, from the other party, 
in an environment with a narrow majority, you don't need to depend on every single Democrat voting your way. So part of the story is McConnell keeping his people in line <laughs> and his ability to do that then forced the issue. Can you get the mansion vote? So that was part of it. I don't know the answer yet, but those negotiations with Manchin and why they ultimately broke down are going to be an important part of the understanding that Biden presidency. I don't know how much is the administration kind of not doing the right thing and not figuring out how to sway Manchin. There's a history of single powerful members who refuse to act, not necessarily of principle, but because it empowers them. It made Manchin a national political figure. I don't discount the role of McConnell. It was that total and effective Republican opposition, which forced the Democratic hand to try to figure this out, which then they couldn't do on Build Back Better. They did on infrastructure, on the American Rescue Plan, which were significant. I end each session on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to the senior leadership in the House, the battle for control of this institution, and passing bipartisan legislation? that pandemic creates a bit of a 1930s generation feel, meaning a new generation of leaders who understand the need to solve problems. Younger people see the costs of a system that can't solve problems and younger members who work in different ways and who start to figure it out. Thanks to Michelle and Julian for joining us today. That ends this session. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The topic was inflation. We had an all-star team of economists speak about rising prices. John Taylor spoke about the Taylor Rule and that the Fed is behind the curve on raising interest rates. Casey Mulligan, a labor economist at the University of Chicago, highlighted how Biden's policies of stimulus, discouragement of employment, and limiting oil extraction added to inflationary pressures. Our final speaker was Alan Auerbach from University of California, Berkeley, who thinks that federal spending has pushed us beyond full employment and that rates will have to rise more than expected. I'd also like to plug next week's show. Paul Kennedy, the Yale historian, returns for his history of World War II. This will be part three that will focus on the fateful year 1943, the year the war was won. Paul will tell us why the U.S. decided to invade North Africa instead of Europe as a trial balloon and why that attack was followed up by the invasion of Italy to knock Mussolini out of the war and how the British war aims differ from the U.S. and why that caused a strife between the alliance from time to time. So much to learn. You're going to love hearing from Paul. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. I would love to hear your reactions to today's program, so please email me at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com with ideas and comments. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.